Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's a Wednesday afternoon, early afternoon. And um, running a lot behind schedule, things are a little confused over here this week in my house um, and my own schedule. So let me uh, just do um, uh, Mishpacha Stefanski, who made a wedding yesterday, Mazatov to them, the daughter Nava, she built a bison in Israel. And with their permission, I'm going to say another piece about <clears throat> Parshas Bo and the all three parshas over here, uh, which, well, here we go. Uh, what caught my attention, and this is more like a general kind of observation, we know that Moshe, of course, uh, does all the plagues until Paro says go, correct? Paro in pajamas in the middle of the night. <clears throat> go, he says go. And uh, that was sort of like the requirement over here. Meaning, Moshe didn't simply say, we're busting out of here. Uh, it's got to be done legally. That is to say, Paro is going to do it. Uh, it's going to be an official act. Whatever it says. So Moshe, before the last plague, says to Pharaoh, not only are we going to take all of our cattle and everything, but you're going to come and tell us to leave. And Rashi says, obviously, Moshe wanted to say to Paro, you're going to come and kiss my feet, but you have to give a little cover to the Malchus, so you say your, your servants will. And that's what I want to talk about altogether. At the very beginning of this story, in Vayera, it says, Vayitzavim Bani Yisrael, did it command him to be cholet covered to Paro. So, even though Moshe could have, if he's running ten plagues, walked all over Pharaoh and, uh, you know, uh, made him look ridiculous, or even beat him up. After all, Moshe is protected by Shem. Uh, but he didn't do that. Instead, he spoke very seriously, but uh, always acknowledging Pharaoh's authority. So when Pharaoh says, I'm not going to do it, Moshe had no choice to say, okay, you're not going to do it. We'll bring you another plague, right? <clears throat> he didn't say, what do you mean you're not going to do it? You see, I just brought in blood and frogs and all the other things. You've you got to do it. Motion doesn't do that. He just keeps ratcheting up the plagues, as we know, until Paro himself says, say, or something like that, which, of course, they do in Parsha's boat. So the question is, it's just interesting, why does he have to be fully covered to Paro? You could say that the, you know, that the Torah is a monarchical document. That God approves of kings. You don't find any reference in the Bible that I know of to democracy. Instead, you find monarchy. You can have a tyrannical monarchy. You can have a a a, a good and benevolent monarchy, but it's always with some kind of king at the top. Hello, Deverhu. Matter of fact, it's part of the Jewish religion that you believe there has to be a Mashiach. Would be some kind of a monarch. 
Why? Why can't you say we'll have a, a good republic or something like that? I don't know, but, you know, apparently it's going to be a monarchy. Now, it will be um, a divided power, you know, like as one finds in some kind of a non-autocratic situation. There will be a Sanhedrin and things like this. You have to consult with them. Morris says, at least according to the Talmud, that, you know, king can't uh, declare war without approval of Sanhedrin, that famous Gemara at the beginning of Brachas. So, you know, okay. But it'll be a monarchy. Uh, so you could tell, say that Moshe Rabbeinu also is not going to make fun of Paro because that will degrade the, the concept of monarchy and the Jews are going to need that themselves. Uh, but I think there's more than that. And I'm doing this on the basis, I just, we spoke about this before in a ladies' class today, of American history, because one of the interesting things to me about World War II is the way the U.S. conducted itself in terms of its war in, um, in the Atlantic versus the Pacific, and the European conflict on the one hand, and the Asian conflict on the other, and the war against Hitler in Germany, and the war against Hirohito in Japan, the Emperor Hirohito. Um, in the case of Hitler, it was what you call unconditional surrender. The Americans demanded, and of course they knew Hitler would never agree to that. And so the war had to be fought to the last second, and they had to physically go in and take over and occupy every square inch of Germany. If you look at a map of how much of Germany was left at the end of the war, by the time Hitler was dead and whoever was left gave up, it was a very tiny piece. And that was pretty evident because Hitler was of such a nature, he would never surrender and let himself be taken uh, prisoner or something like that. And he, as we all know, he shot himself. Um, but the Americans and the British and the Russians, actually, in the World War II, bombed the heck out of Germany as much as they could. I don't know what the final results were. They say it's not as much as they expected. But they bombed the heck out of Germany. And um, it's not like they spared any area within Berlin, for example. They flattened whatever they could. You know, they bombed the Reichstag building and all that sort of thing. Whatever they could. Okay. Now I'm going to contrast that with Japan. When the U.S. fought the Japs in World War II, they fought a bunch of islands and things like that. And eventually... Once they got within range of uh, a bombing range of Japan, which was in '44, after they captured Saipan, uh, you know, the, in other words, they fought the war in Japan, the in, war in World War II, you know, island hopping. Remember first Guadalcanal, then Tarawa, then Anuiktuk, and whatever, and then um, and then those islands over there, the Marianas, which is Saipan. And on Saipan, that was close enough that you could launch bombing attacks on Japan, and they did. In the beginning, they knew exactly what they're doing, but by 1945, they knew what they're doing, and they bombed the heck out of Tokyo and all these other cities. I mean, they mamish burned them to the ground. Everybody knows a little bit about World War II knows that they actually killed more people with the regular bombing than they did with the A bomb. Okay, if I remember correctly, I think they killed 100,000 Japanese in a in a normal bombing raid on Tokyo for example. But they never bombed the Emperor's Palace. You know? The American uh, uh, planes had had um, instructions. Don't bomb 
the Emperor's Palace. You can bomb around there. It's so like I say, they flattened Tokyo and they brought in fires and they killed 100,000 people in one raid, give me an example. So just Google a photo of Japan at the end of World War II. It's all flat, you know what I mean? But not the Imperial Palace. Uh, and it's strange uh, because they saw them flying over all the time. But it became evident they're not going to bomb the palace. Farvos. Um, and they made it clear by the time they get to the war, they're not going to hurt the emperor. They'll deprive his power, but not going to physically hurt him. And for that reason, Japan still has an emperor today. What happened to the emperor Hirohito when World War II was over? Nothing, not really. You know, uh, it was General MacArthur and they treated him well and whatever. Now, what's the reason for that? After all, Hitler was the head of one of the Axis powers and Hirohito was the emperor of the other Axis powers. So how come they treated Hitler one way and if they would have got a hold of him, they would have executed him? Mashenkin and Hirohito, they did not. It's interesting. And the answer goes as follows. The Americans, to their credit, fought with their head and not with their heart. Really, Hirohito, the emperor of Japan, was a mom's and a half. If you know the real details of what went on, he ordered and approved all these atrocities against American prisoners and stuff like that. Just get the Ian Toll books. You know, he's got three books now, Professor Toll. They're really very good on the Pacific War. Rachel Bitchaktana. They got everything in there. And he's, you know, he's looked at all the Japanese records and you can see all the bad stuff that they did, that the emperor ordered. Uh, pretty selfish guy. Nevertheless, the Americans said like this, you don't want to destroy the emperor and the top government. You don't want to uh, uh, nuke them. Listen, when they finally got the A-bomb, which was in the middle of uh, 1945, after Germany had surrendered, why didn't they, they as I think you know, they dropped two atomic bombs, one in Hiroshima and one in Nagasaki. What's that? Why didn't they drop one in Tokyo? The answer is they didn't want to wipe out the Japanese government. They needed the government to surrender. You hear what I just said? He needed the top guys to end the war by a surrender. In other words, the Japanese were so into the emperor and they worshipped him and listened to him and all the rest of it. The whole point is to get him to surrender because if he does, if he can finally bring that about, then he will make all the others surrender. Bakachava. So when finally, in uh, late August of forty-five. Uh, the whole, you know, story behind it, and I'm not going to go into that, there are movies behind it and so forth, uh, when finally, finally, the Japanese emperor said, enough is enough, we're going to surrender, uh, and he made a, a broadcast about that, that had the effect of making all the other Japanese armies and navies and stuff, and they had millions of men out there, say, okay, then the words are, we give up. You understand? Because they listen to orders, and if the emperor says surrender, then you surrender. So the Japanese had millions of soldiers in China and Korea and in uh, I don't know, you know, in, uh, in, in Thailand and Malaysia and, and Indochina and all these places. They were very far from beaten by the time the war was over. Uh, and the Americans knew it. And the Japanese were fully prepared to fight like crazy if the Allies invade Japan. Uh, you know, they used to talk about a million casualties. You know, it could be. Because they didn't care about losing millions of men. 
It's not exactly the same thing, but it's a little bit like this Hamas fighting Israel. They don't mind losing people. And the Americans knew this. So the whole point was to get the top guy to say we give up. And then all the others will not fight. So if you know the Pacific War, obviously everybody makes mistakes in war. The Americans made their share. That's true. But if you know the Pacific War, they fought the war pretty intelligently, the Americans did, and pretty economically for the most part, trying to save as many lives as possible and, and lose as few lives as possible. And um, that's why I did this island hopping business. So even if you look at the map, the Japanese had millions of men well entrenched all over the place, and the Americans picked very specific islands. Here, 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 this is all we need to get to Japan. And we can bypass all the other places. Uh, and so the, the casualties, whatever we had in World War II in the Pacific, um, one minute. Here it is, we lost 111,000 men. I'm not making light of that, but that's very small numbers if you hop what I'm saying, right? You know, all, all together. 100, 111,000 men uh, killed. And a quarter million wounded. Uh, that's a small number, relatively speaking. And the reason is, you know, for the most part, I mean, they made a few mistakes here and there. They did, you know. The whole Philippines was a mistake, but whatever. But Derek Claw, they tried their best. And the point was to get to Japan and get the guy to surrender. Then we won't have to fight all the others. So this worked. When the emperor surrendered, you can you can Google this and, you know, go on your YouTube and see the uh, documentaries, uh, news things. When the Japanese emperor surrendered, all of a sudden the millions of men Surrendered in China and in Malaysia and in China and this place and that place and whatever. And so it worked. So it was Kadai to save all those American lives to let this guy go. My point is, when you have a monarchy and it's top down, it's organized like a pyramid, then you want to get the top guy. And that's what happened to the story of Paro. When Hashem says, you be it wasn't simply a guy as a monarchist. It's that Hashem knew that if you want to get the logistics of a Yassiz Mitzrayim, where the Jews are scattered all over the place, as slaves by everybody, and how are you going to get all the Egyptians to agree that, you know, now they can go? Uh, I'm sure they had their share of fanatics over there also, and they had their share of people who wouldn't let the Jews want to go in under any circumstances. You had that in the American South after the uh, Civil War, there were some hardliners that wouldn't let the slaves go and this and that and the other. There were. So how come you didn't have that in Mitzrayim? Unless you say, Hashem told Moshe from day one, treat power with respect because you want to build him up. And the reason you want to build him up is so when eventually he will say, go, say, everybody will listen because they listen to Pharaoh. Because that's their culture. You understand? They won't say no. What gives him the right to say that? And all the rest of it. Um, it's very interesting because Lemaisa, Pyro's the one who held out, but when Pyro finally cracked, as we know, uh, you find that, you know, the, 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 the midstream didn't stop the Jews from all leaving. Hello, uh, Dover. Now, the truth is that it does say. Bashem, the son of Shen Um, 
you know, words to that effect. I don't have it in front of me. But you remember that in the first part of the parasha. And it does say that Hashem, I mean, the words are, That's an interesting expression. Uh, when you see, God gave a chain, a favor to people. Is that just a rhetorical expression? Meaning, let's say I uh, meet you and I like you. So you could you could express it as God put your favor in my eyes because God runs everything, or does it mean that you know uh, you find a sort of unnatural but miraculous and true feeling of positive towards the Jews, which was necessary for the actual liberation for everybody to take place at the same time? We don't give proper, in my opinion, we don't give proper. Um, appreciation for the fact that the Imam all got out of one night and that nobody put up any uh, fights about it. And, uh, you know, it went smoothly, so to speak. Uh, not only that, they went so fast. That that's the mantra, you know, they, they left real fast. So how come nobody's tried to block them? And how do they all assemble in different parts of the country? And how could it be? Unless you say that Hashem made it because God runs popular feelings. You find at different times in history people like Jews and other times people don't like Jews. Sometimes they like Americans, some say they don't like Americans. Now, historians will probably look for cause and effect and that's understandable from the historical perspective. Everything, Every effect has a cause. But the Torah is looking from a divine perspective and who made the cause, you understand? It's Hashem. So when it says Hashem gave the favor of the Jews in the eyes of the people, he's saying something remarkable. It could easily have gone the other way. Why didn't the Egyptians say, hey, uh, these Jews are the ones causing us all the trouble. Don't and all the rest of it. Ah, you'll tell me because it's your own fault for enslaving them. This in the Middle East, we see now from the Gaza word, they can flip and turn any story the way they want. Why didn't they simply say, all of this is the result of the misfortunes brought by us by the Jews, let's kill them or something like that. But they didn't do that. They, you know, left them alone, as it were, and they even responded the way bullies respond, which is, if you kick me back, I respect you. You understand? Uh, when you show you got teeth also, then, uh, you know, it, the, the, the bullies back off, and they say, wow, these guys are something also. Now, it wasn't the Jews that were doing this, it was Hashem with the Ten Plagues, but nevertheless, the result was, whoa, these Jews must stand in, have big buddies. You understand? If as a result of their enslavement, we're getting 10 plagues. And we don't get this kind of junk from any of our other slaves, because remember, the story you see since time is very narrow. I made this point last year or two years ago. There were lots and lots of slaves in ancient Egypt. It was only the Jews that got out. You understand? Plus a few Erev Rav, however that works. We don't know exactly how that works, but obviously the Erev Rav must have been a function of the fact that people say, hey, they're getting out, I'm getting out too. You know, I'm getting out too. Um, that's an opportunistic sort of thing. And even though they knew that when they're getting out, they have to, like, adopt Jewish ways, and later on, these guys may have been the ones who popped up with the golden calf. You know, it's all, all that speculation. But the bottom line is that, um, you know, uh, only the Jews got out. The other slaves remained. So, 
uh, it doesn't say destroy the system, uh, overturn the entire slavery business. Uh, God did not disapprove of slavery. I mean, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but you see that he did so. He's only the B'nai Yisrael, okay? It's a little bit like, I think I said this in the past, it's a little like the Ethiopian Jews. If you know what happened with them, um, years ago, uh, there was a time when, um, now I know there's a movie about the, the, the resort and all that, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like lots lots of them had to le uh, walk out of Ethiopia and go into Sudan and go into these uh, giant United Nations refugee camps with millions of people suffering from different wars and stuff like that. And when Israel organized itself properly, they went into these camps and identified which of the people, all of whom were black, which ones were Jewish, as they uh, considered it, and they took those guys out. So just imagine you're in a large barracks somewhere in Sudan, and it comes the middle of the night, and a truck pulls up, and a guy gets out, right? A black guy, an African guy, who's Jewish, and he's got a list of names, and he goes around and identifies 10 or 15 people out of 1,000 people in the barracks, and he says, you come with me, and they pick him up and put him in a truck, they take them wherever they take them and fly them off to Israel. And the others, I'm sure in the barracks, say, what the heck just happened? Who's it? Who are these guys? You know, what is this? And if you're freeing people or getting them out of here, why don't you take me to it also? So that's what happened in Mitzrayim. There were people who had slaves, and Lav Dafka, a guy only had Jewish slaves. I don't think we think this through usually. I'll give an example. Suppose I was a big Egyptian farmer, a prosperous one. And I've got a lot of land and junk like that. So I need people to work the fields. So I have slaves. Some of them are B'nai Yisrael, but some of them are not. They're for others. Slavery was a very common commodity. And, you know, it's a question of buying. After all, wasn't Joseph sold in the Egyptian slave market long before the time he sees Mitzrayim? He was sold to Potiphar, right? You had, you know, slavery and slave markets and all the rest of it. You had them in ancient Israel as well, by the way. <laughs> And let's say I'm a farmer, so I need, for argument's sake, 50 workers. So I go to the marketplace, or wherever it is you buy these things, and I pick out 50 guys that look strong, they can do the work. A couple of them may be Ethiopian, a couple of them may be Arabs, a couple will be Jewish, a couple will be, you know, Libyan, I don't know, you, whatever the nationalities that were enslaved over there. Comes, you'd see his Mitzrayim, and... From my 50 slaves, if I'm that landowner, five of them are Jewish. And those five guys, you know, put the blood on their house on their Pesach, and they leave on Pesach, right? And since Hashem Nelson is Cheno Ambe in Mitzrayim, so, and I, the farmer here, the Paro himself said, go, that's the new rule now that they're all freed. So I myself go and say, you know, okay, you five uh, slaves or ten slaves, whatever it is, you go. The rest of you guys stay, though. <laughs> right? The rest of you guys slave stay because you guys are not causing a Makas Bechiris. But these five guys are causing me a Makas Bechiris. So it's not like the Egyptians became enlightened or anything like that. It's just they were subject to tremendous pressure. And as a result, you know, uh, they, they finally gave in on, on the Jewish part. But it came top down. That's the interesting part. It came top down. So when Paro says it, and he's the king, and everybody listens to him, then it becomes a matter of law. 
It's like when Abraham, when, when America, they passed that constitutional amendment abolishing the slavery after the Civil War. Okay, if that's the law, then that's the law. I might like it, I might not like it, the, the guy could say, but that, you know, but that's the way it's going to be. So it had to be legal. Now, having said all that, consequently, you find at the very beginning that Kosh Baruch is like this. I want you to be Tzavim, I want to be called cover to power, because we need him. It's not simply be respectful, you know, like a Musavard or something like that. We need him. He's the key to the whole situation, because we need him to give in. Uh, it may take a while for him to give in. When he does, he does. Now, having said this, uh, Paro, as you know, never quite gives in. Uh, he bends to necessity, but he doesn't quite give in. And by that, of course, I mean, as you read the story, like in this parsha, first he says, Mi hochim. You know, in other words, you can all go and worship your God for three days, but not everybody. And Moshe says, no, we're taking everybody. And then Pyro says, okay, but I'll keep the animals. And Moshe says, no, we're keeping the animals. No, we're keeping the animals. You're going to give us animals too. Um, so you see, even at the ninth plague, Pharaoh is, you know, handling. Okay? He, he, he can't give in and say, this, you know, write this off as a bad investment, which is what it was, because slavery, as they say every year, is supposed to be an economic institution, and economically wasn't working. So Pharaoh's CPAs were telling him, just write this off, you know, because uh, you're just losing money, which is the opposite of what you want to slave for. You want to slave to make money. Uh, be that as it may, the, the, the fact is, <clears throat> the fact is that uh, yeah, uh, he didn't want to let him go. And he he, he did say, you know, you can go, but as you know, he he, he meant only three days. Now, uh, it was just interesting, you know. I mean, he persuaded himself, obviously, that after three days, there won't be any more plagues. Maybe their God is angry because he won't let him worship that God. I mean, that's obviously how he conceived of it. Uh, Hashem had this in mind to drown him in the in the Red Sea. But that's the story we'll save for next time. So again, I want to thank Mishpah Stavansky, Malvin Tovo and Navas Marriage. And now comes the Shavrochas. And obviously, we all pray and hope that they should build a bison and be thrilled. Uh, Shane Multiferous. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.